Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, we're going to continue our series in the book of Ephesians today called Chosen. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, if you receive the sermon notes that, you, uh, that were on the uh, welcome table when you came in, pull those out. And if you did not, you can go pick up a copy on the welcome table. We also have Bibles that you can borrow on the information table if you forgot your Bible it's, uh, please just get up and go grab one. We want you to be able to follow along with us through this message. As we open up uh, the scriptures together to hear from the Lord and what he has to say to us, let's review the theme verse for this book, the, the verse that sums up what Paul is trying to say in this letter to the church in Ephesus. And that theme verse is Ephesians 1.4. Let's read it out loud together. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Throughout this letter to the church in Ephesus, the apostle Paul reminds us directly and indirectly that for those who have made Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior, you were chosen for a purpose. In chapters 1 through 3, the apostle methodically lays the foundation for our permanent position in Christ. Then he spends the second half of the book, which we started last week, chapters 4 through 6, explaining how our position gives us a powerful purpose. A purpose to live for in our lives. Well, what is our purpose in life? Well, simply put, it's to glorify God in everything that we do. And if you've not yet begun a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by repenting of your sin and trusting in Him alone for your salvation, you can do that. You can do that today. I'm willing to do that with you after the service. And in doing so, you will have new life and you will have new purpose, a life worth living and meaning. Now, last week we learned how our position enables us to build church unity. Today, Paul is going to talk to us about the importance of pursuing personal holiness. And here's what Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 32 is telling us in one sentence, or, well, technically it's two sentences, two short ones. I think it's the first time in a long time I've ever had a two-sentence big idea. And it's because I'm committed to good grammar, okay? Personal holiness is not an option. It's the Lord's expectation. Personal holiness is not an option. It's the Lord's expectation. In the second half of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul continues to build on the foundation he laid back in verse 1. And that is where he said, those who have been called to faith in Christ are to walk in a manner worthy of of their calling. Jesus has expectations of those who claim to know him, of those that he has saved, those he died for, those he chose and called into a relationship with him. He has expectations. 
That's a shock to some people. They, they're not aware of that, or they've been told that he has no expectations. Yet here in Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, Paul is going to provide another brick in laying the foundation for church unity, and that is personal holiness. Why? Because just as sin separates us from God, sin also separates members of the Lord's church. And although salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, Ephesians 2.8, and it's free, there is a cost, though, that comes with living the Christian life. And that cost, simply put, is your old life. This passage is extremely relevant today because it shatters the false gospel that teaches that someone can profess faith in Christ, have their sins forgiven, have their tickets stamped for heaven, and then continue living unchanged by the gospel. It's a lie from hell. It's not true. A saved sinner who continues to live as the world lives is a kind of mutant that does not exist in the Bible anywhere. And this is just one of many reasons the Holy Spirit instructed Paul to write these 15 verses. Please follow along with me as I read the first three, chapter 4, Ephesians, verses 17 to 19. Paul says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Here's the first point on your outline that Paul wants to make to us today. The first of two And that is that continuing to live your old, unholy life is a problem. Continuing to live your old, unholy life is a problem. Even a smidgen of your old, unholy life is a problem. It all has to die. It all has to go away. Paul is very serious here in what he's saying. And... The English translation doesn't, uh, unfortunately, convey that. So I'm going to do a little work here to help you understand how serious he is. Uh, He says, notice in verse 17, Now this I say and testify. Similar to verse 1 in chapter 4, the word intense that Paul uses in the original text carries more force than what the English translation gives us. The word for testify, the Greek word, it means to, uh, to cite or to call forward a witness, as the ESV renders here with testify. Uh, but it also means to do so in an urging, insisting, and imploring way or manner. This is why the NIV, some of you, if you have that translation, uh, translates the word testify instead as insist. I insist in the Lord. Neither translation's wrong. It's just an example of what gets lost in translation from, from Greek to English and how Bible translators always have to wrestle with how do we say this in English. English is a sloppy language, while Greek is a beautiful, precise language. 
Now, Paul adds more gravity to, to the imperative he's giving here by tagging it with, in the Lord. So now I say this, I testify, I insist. And then just in case we didn't get his point, in the Lord. This is significant because he's adding God's authority behind his own so that we will take him seriously, so that we won't just brush past what he's going to say next and read it casually. It's sort of like when I ask one of my daughters to, uh, hey, would you please go upstairs and tell your brother, knock on his bedroom door and tell him to come downstairs and do his chores. And this happens often in our home. And now when my daughter goes upstairs and knocks on the door to her brother's bedroom and blurts out, come do your chores. It should not shock you that he does not come out of the cave from playing video games. However, when I send her back upstairs and I say, tell him, Dad says, come do your chores. Guess who comes out of the cave? You see, when my daughters invoke my name, their brothers know they had better obey because it would be really bad if Dad has to come upstairs and they'll get extra chores or lose video game time or privileges. In the similar sense, the apostle is invoking God's name here because what he is about to say is extra important. Look back at verse 17, and he begins with a, his imperative. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now you might remember me mentioning back in chapter 2 uh, that a Gentile is simply anyone who's not Jewish. It's, it's anyone born outside of a pure Jewish bloodline. And most believers in Ephesus, most of the believers in Ephesus were Gentile. So he wasn't asking them to stop being who they were ethnically, but rather he was asking them to stop being who they were spiritually. Jews were typically very moral people before they came to faith in Christ. The opposite was true of Gentiles. Gentiles were usually idol worshipers, sexually immoral, drunkards, and much more before they got saved. Very wicked on a moral scale. That doesn't mean the Jews were any better. The Jews were very proud and arrogant of their morality, thinking it would save them. So God had special words for them as well. But Paul then continues to build his case against unbelievers here in order to show the believers in Ephesus, that their former life is not worth continuing or going back to. And if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, verses 17 to 19 are about you. doesn't matter what age you are. doesn't matter how long you've come to church or where you serve or how much you give to the church or what political party you are affiliated with. If you don't know Jesus, verses 17 and 19 are about you. If you do know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, verses 17 and 19 are about who you used to be. Even when you were, if you were five years old when you came to faith, you were like what Paul says in verses 17 and 19. Well, I don't remember, Pastor, what I was like then. Just take Paul's word for it then. So Paul lists three characteristics of those who do not know the Lord. 
And here's letter A on your outline. The first thing he says is, you were separated from God. You Ephesians, when you were Gentile unbelievers, you're still Gentiles now as believers, but when you were an unbeliever as a Gentile, you were separated from God. And all of us who know Christ as our Savior, uh, you know, for me, when I I got saved at age 19 in college, before I got saved as a freshman in college, I was separated from God. You see it there in the text in verse 18 where he says, you were alienated from the life of God. Without Jesus Christ, unbelievers are excluded from the promises and privileges that come with being part of God's family. They are outsiders. They, because they are spiritually dead, they are unable to respond to spiritual stimulus, unable to communicate with God, and have no hunger for spiritual things. Next, Paul says, letter B, your heart was hard. Verse 18, due to their hardness of heart. To have a hard heart is a phrase that is used in the scriptures to describe individuals who either refuse to obey God, are spiritually dull, or both. For example, it was hardness of heart. It was used to describe Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 8 when he refused to let God's people leave Egypt. Hardness of heart also, though, was used to describe the disciples in Mark chapter 8 when they didn't understand what Jesus was trying to teach them about the bread miracles. He said, are your hearts hard? So to have a hard heart is not good. It's describing someone who basically the ground of their heart, to use the soil metaphor from the parable of the sower, the, the seed of the word just bounces off their hearts. It doesn't land on fertile soil and take root. It just bounces right off. It's like throwing seed down on concrete. Next, letter C, Paul says, you gave yourself to sin instead of God. You gave yourself to sin instead of God. As Gentile unbelievers, the Ephesians had given themselves up, he says. The word given in the original text paints a picture of surrendering control or power over to someone else in your life or something else. In this case, it was sin. And more specifically, sensuality, greed, and impurity. When Paul wrote this, it it made me think of, uh, it would be like a blind man turning over the keys to his car uh, to a drunkard instead of turning them over to the Lord, and the drunkard driving himself and the blind man off a spiritual cliff to their death. That's what unbelievers do. They would rather die in their sin instead of being set free from it so they can live. So Paul is saying, that's who you used to be. Don't long for that life anymore. There's nothing good about it. Don't wish you could go back and do it over again. Now, this raises a question, at least in my mind, why would the Apostle Paul talk about the total depravity of unbelievers before segueing into a discourse on personal holiness? Which is what he's going to do in the rest of the text, the rest of the chapter. Here's why he does that. Because having an accurate 
picture of our sinfulness is the foundation of saving faith. Tragically, today, many unbelievers and professing believers have a definition of sin that is too narrow. They, they think that so long as they keep at least five or six of the Ten Commandments, they're a pretty good person that can earn their way to heaven. But in reality, sin is any act or thought committed or omitted that violates the entire Word of God. Which means we sin a lot more than we think we do. Which is why, some of you have heard me say before, we either just got done sinning, we are sinning, or we're about to do it. That's, that, that's my summation of the doctrine of sin in the Scriptures. In his classic and highly recommended devotional book, Morning and Evening, Charles Spurgeon explains the most important reason for understanding our own sinfulness and need for holiness. Spurgeon writes this, if your life is unholy and your heart is unchanged, and if your heart is unchanged, you are an unsaved person. If the Savior has not sanctified you, renewed you, and given you a hatred of sin and a love of holiness, He's done nothing in you of a saving character. The grace that does not make a man better than others is a worthless, counterfeit grace. Now, did you, did you catch what Spurgeon is saying there? If you have no desire for holiness, or you've made no progress or very little progress at all pursuing holiness since your profession of faith, then you have a bigger problem. You're still lost. And that's not according to Charles Spurgeon. That's according to God's Word. Spurgeon is just summarizing a portion of God's Word that talks about that. I know it's hard to hear. And you didn't get up the day after the 4th of July to come hear that. I understand. I'd rather not have to say it, but it's straight up truth from the Scriptures. And it needs to be said. 1 John chapter 2, verses 5-6, through 6, John says something very similar. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way way in which he walked. Now, there is encouragement in these verses. I'm always praying for it and looking for it so I can share it with you. I know that I am a prophetic type preacher, and I have challenged myself in the past year to try and find more encouragement in God's Word as I work through texts. So here's some encouragement and hope for you. Despite how wicked our hearts are, we have great hope in the Gospel. And that is because the one who knows us at our worst also loves us the most. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 8, is where Paul wrote, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we still wanted nothing to do with God, Christ died for us. While we thought we knew better than God, Christ died for us. While we thought we could earn our way to heaven, Christ died for us. So there's hope in the gospel. He loves us, and he wanted to know us and be with us so bad that he gave up his one and only son. Personal holiness is not an option. It's the Lord's expectation. Here's why. Look at verses 20 to 21. Paul writes, but, anytime there's a, a but there or a therefore, normally in Paul's writing style, there's what I call a pivot in the text. He's going to shift gears and now change directions a little bit. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Here's number two on your outline. Building your new holy life is a process. Building your new holy life is a process. The process by which the Lord accomplishes this is called progressive sanctification. So building your new holy life is a process. Now let me define progressive sanctification for you. This is a, this is a big, it's a fancy word that theologians use to describe the lifelong process, or partnership, excuse me. It's a partnership with God in which the believer applies the scriptures and God makes the believer more like Christ. Progressive sanctification is a lifelong partnership with God in which the believer applies the scriptures and God makes the believer more like Christ. Progressive sanctification is, is us putting forth effort to grow and the Lord matching our effort in order to help us make it across the finish line. The process is succinct, succinctly stated in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. You can jot that down and look it up later or mark it in your Bible later. But this is where Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's there in Philippians 2 that Paul, Paul is not saying work for your salvation. Neither is he saying work towards your salvation. And he's not saying work at your salvation. Because the Philippians already had that. He was saying live out your salvation as changed people. Live out what God has already worked in you through repentance and faith in Christ. According to J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors, you know you're progressing towards holiness when you begin to hate what God hates, when you begin to love what God loves, and measure everything in the world according to the standard of His Word. You know you're making progress. I was recently encouraged by that uh, personally in my own life because uh, I was watching... Uh, TV show or a movie on a, one of the streaming services I subscribe to, and 
the streaming service uh, recommended a show to me and said, you want to watch this again, Carrie? You know, it popped up and it was a show that I had watched, I don't know, five, six years ago. And it's one that I wouldn't watch now. And I saw it and I went, oh man, why did I watch that? No, I don't want to see that. And, And it was just a reminder for me that as I have continued to walk with the Lord and study the scriptures, he's working on me because I was not offended by that show five to six years ago, but I am now. I wanted nothing to do with it. Oh, get that out of here. I'm not going to watch that again. Let's go into my viewing history and delete that, purge that. I don't want to have that recommended to me. Perhaps you've experienced the same. Now, why should we pursue personal holiness? That's another question that came to my mind as I studied this text. Why? What's the big deal? Well, among other things, there's several reasons, but here's just a few. Uh, First of all, it brings us closer to the Lord and Him closer to us. In James chapter 8, James says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. So if you've ever wanted to get close to the Lord, if you've ever wondered, why is the Lord not closer to me? Why can I not feel his presence? Where is he at? One of the first places you might want to look at is your personal holiness. Is there some sin you need to deal with? Is there, are there some habits you need to, to repent of and ask the Lord to forgive you and take some steps so that you can get closer to him? I can tell you personally in my own walk with the Lord over 25 plus years, The times I have felt closest to him were the times when I was repenting and owning sin. Next, another reason why we should pursue personal holiness is it gets our prayers heard. In Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist writes, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Meaning, when we have known sin that we've not repented of, it hinders our prayers. Another reason why we should pursue personal holiness is it makes us useful to the Lord. If you've wondered, why is is God not using me? Why I I just don't see him working in my life. Why, Why is he not using me where I work or in my neighborhood? Well, it could be you need to work on your personal holiness. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul uses the illustration of dinnerware to explain how spiritual growth makes us useful to the Lord. Back in Paul's day, it was common for more affluent families to have two sets of dinner dishes. And they had everyday dishes for common use, and then they had fine china for special occasions. The apostle says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that if we pursue a life of holiness, the Lord will use us for special occasions just as a wife would use her fine china on the holidays. Next, another reason is that it draws others to the Lord. Personal holiness draws others to the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the author of Hebrews says, Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This obviously contradicts the philosophy that many churches have adopted today that says we have to become more like the world in order to reach the world. The author of Hebrews would beg to differ. So those are just a few reasons why personal holiness is important and why we should be motivated to pursue it. But how? How do we do it? What does that look like? 
Well, Paul answers that question in the remaining verses of chapter 4. And by the way, I think I put this on your sermon note handout. Ephesians 4, 22 to 32 it has a parallel passage. It's very similar to Colossians 3, chapter, Colossians 3 verses 5 to 17. Very similar concepts that are talked about. But let's read verses 22 to 24. Paul says, You are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So here's letter A on your, on your outline. What's Paul saying? He's saying, take off your old thinking and behavior. Take it off. The apostle is using the metaphor of changing clothes in order to help us visualize how to get closer to the Lord. We are to take off or to stop the old way of thinking that we had before knowing Christ. Or literally, as Paul says, it's that way of thinking and living and how you made decisions. That was your former manner of life, and that was corrupt. Our old life is what got us separated from God in the first place and condemned to hell. It's what Jesus died to set us free from, and it has no future. Next, Paul says, letter B, put on new thinking and behavior. So you're taking a garment off or a, the old jacket off and you're putting on a new jacket or new clothes. Put on the new self, he says, continuing with this clothing metaphor. We are to put on our new identity in Christ by embracing Christ-like behaviors. And this is important because if all we did was worry about not sinning, We'd experience constant failure by fretting. You know, like, don't get angry, don't get angry, don't get angry. Oh, gosh, I got angry. No, I'm angry that I'm angry. Or, don't envy, don't envy, don't envy what she's wearing. Don't envy, don't envy. Oh, I'm envying. See, Paul, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, thankfully knows that we would be prone to do this. And so the Spirit inspires Paul to encourage us to replace the negative sinful behavior with a positive one. Sanctified behavior, sanctified thinking. It's a sobering reminder that the Lord has called us to a completely new life, not a slightly improved old one. So we are to put off the old self and put on the new self. Paul then gives specific examples of how to do this in the remaining verses, verses 25 to 32. He says, therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each, of, each one of you excuse me, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. In verse 30, 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now notice, notice the patterns of stopping negative behavior to put off, and then the replacing it, the putting on, that Paul does here in these verses. So for example, in verse 25, we see that church members are to stop lying to one another and instead to speak the truth. Negative replaced with a positive. Uh, then he says, be angry and do not sin. It's a reminder that there is both righteous and unrighteous anger. It is righteous to be angry at sin in the body, such as lying in the previous verse. But it is unrighteous to sin against the liar in order to get revenge against them. That would not please the Lord. Paul says one of the ways to avoid unrighteous anger is to do our best to resolve the conflict within a certain time frame. Thus, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And resolving conflict with a sense of urgency is important because waiting too long gives the devil an opportunity, or as some translations render it, a foothold, an opportunity for the devil to, to cause more division in the body. Next, if you see in verse 28, uh, I'm sorry, uh, in verse 27, the thief is to put off stealing and then to put on working so that he can share with others instead of taking from people. And then verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. This is interesting. Um, and this stuck in my mind because I, I have to, because of my health issues and my diet, I have to eat fresh produce. And so I go to the grocery store a couple days a week, and I am, I am the red seedless grape Nazi. I can't have squishy, molding grapes. I've got to have the fresh ones, and then they only last two days in my fridge anyway. Here's why I'm thinking of that. The word for unwholesome or corrupting, uh, unwholesome is how some translations render it, it's the Greek word used in the first century to refer to rotten fruit, putrid or worthless or some other renderings for the, the word. This is what Paul had in his mind regarding some of the words that come out of believers' mouths. It's putrid, it's corrupted, it's corrupting, it's unwholesome. The apostle has in mind here foul language, sarcasm, sneering, complaining, and insults. These are not things believers should be known for. Instead, the positive alternative for us is to, to speak words that are good and helpful and encouraging, as you see there in the text. Now, Paul takes a break, notice in verse 30, from his listing of the sinful behavior to stop and then the positive, righteous behavior to replace it with. He pauses and says, oh, and by the way, in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The word that's used in the original text for grieve means to cause severe and mental or emotional distress, to vex, to irritate, offend, or insult. Now, why would he put this here? 
It seems that Paul was, was wanting to remind the Ephesian believers and us as well that when we sin, it affects the Lord. It brings an emotion out of him. Grieving. It brings grief. And notice, and notice why. Paul, Paul says, he says, you, you grieve the Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's a reference back to chapter 1. It's the Spirit who was the down, the, the down payment, the deposit guaranteeing your salvation. Yeah, that Spirit, you're bringing grief to Him when you do these things. It's the Spirit who wants to build up the church. So he grieves when we sin and we use unwholesome, corrupting talk or we tear down others or cause division in the church. It grieves him because we're undermining the work he's trying to do. This caused me to wrestle with a question and because I was convicted by it. You know how it works here at Vanguard. If I'm convicted by it, I have to share it with you so we can be convicted together. Because I don't like being convicted alone by the Spirit. So here's the question. When you sin, have you ever considered the way it makes the Lord feel? And I wonder, I wonder if we would sin less if we realized the grief it brought to the Lord's heart when we do. Well, in verse 31, there's another list of sinful negative behaviors to stop doing in our relationships. And in verse 32, moves back to the positive column again, Paul telling us what to do instead of verse 31. In verse 32, I do want to comment just briefly on uh, a commonly quoted phrase in uh, verse 32, excuse me, and that is forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Some translations render this just as, meaning in a similar fashion. Well, then how does the Lord forgive? How, how did he forgive us? Well, we see it play out, out, play out in the gospel. He shows us our sin, waits for us to repent, and then restores our relationship with him. And we should do the same with others. Jesus laid out the process for restoring relationships in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. He also gives the prerequisite for that reconciliation in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. And that's where Jesus says in Luke 17, uh, If your brother repents, then forgive him. If he repents, show him his sin, bring it to his attention, or sister in Christ. I don't have time to unpack that further, but... If you want to learn more about biblical peacemaking, I address it uh, more thoroughly in a, in a message from my Philippians series last year, and that message was called The Joy of Making Peace, and it should still be available on our website. Now, there's hope and there's encouragement here in these last few verses. If you have struggled to break sin habits since you began walking with the Lord, and all of us do, this should encourage you instead of discouraging you. And here's why. J.C. Ryle says it better than I could, so I'm going to ask him to help. Ryle explained why when he wrote this. A true Christian 
is one who has not only peace of conscience, but war within. We may take comfort about our souls if we know anything of an inward fight and conflict. It is a good sign, says Ryle. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers, and anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. Thus, the child of God has two great marks about him or her. His or hers inward warfare and his or hers inward peace. Personal holiness is not an option. It's the Lord's expectation. Now, how do we apply this? What do we do? Jesus said in Matthew 7.21, the one who does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's talk about how we can put feet to our faith. How can we do the will of the Father? By applying His word to our lives. I'm going to do something a little different this time. Instead of me giving you the applications, I'm going to give you two questions that I hope will help you come up with your own applications. And so here's the first one. What do you need to stop doing that's hurting your walk with and witness for the Lord? What do you need to stop doing that's hurting your walk with and witness for the Lord? The purpose of this question is to identify what you need to put off, as we've been talking about. So, is it, for example, uh, do you need to put off listening to or watching sexually explicit content? Perhaps it's spending too much time on your smartphone, fearing people, fearing failure, criticizing others, complaining, sharing your opinions without being asked, being rude to others, gossip, slander, rudeness, or impatience. Or maybe what you need to put off, meaning you need to end or kill it, is a relationship. Is there a relationship you need to end that is hurting your walk or witness for the Lord. I want to encourage you to write one or two sin habits down there on your sermon note handout, and then commit them to prayer and, and to find scripture verses to memorize that can help you defeat them. There is power in God's word, and especially power when we memorize and we pray verses that target areas we struggle with. I can testify to this in my own life. We have to take our sins seriously because if we don't, a failure to take our sins seriously is a failure to take the cross that Jesus died on seriously. The Lord takes great offense at this because of what it cost him to take care of our sin problem. So there should be an urgency to dealing with our sin. We should take it serious and put effort into dealing with it. Because if not, we're just taking for granted what Jesus did on the cross for us. Next, here's the second question. What do you need to start doing in order to help your walk or witness for the Lord? What do you need to start doing? The purpose of this question, obviously, is to identify what to put on, the positive replacement. Oftentimes, this will be the opposite of what you need to stop doing. 
but not always. For example, if you struggle with watching sexually explicit content, maybe you need to activate the parental controls on your streaming account and have someone else set the PIN number so you can't change it in a weak moment. Or if you struggle with uh, too much time on your smartphone and surfing social media and being detached from people or not spending time with the Lord in the morning like you should, maybe you need to take advantage of the parental controls now that... uh, smartphone makers offer, where you can set times that your phone is available, or time limits on how much you can use your phone during the day. If you struggle with fearing people, then find some scriptures to memorize about fearing the Lord. If you need help to stop wasting money, then find some scriptures to memorize on contentment and stewardship. If you struggle with being rude to people, then find some verses you can pray and meditate on those related to kindness. I want to encourage you to write one or two things down that you can do instead. Holy habits that you can commit to prayer and find verses to memorize that can help you. I also wanted to mention a couple resources that um, are helpful. Holiness Day by Day is a 365 devotional book by Jerry Bridges. Also the book The Whole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. And there's another one I meant to include on your hand and I not sure if I got it on there. It's called Pursuing Holiness by Jerry Bridges. That's a third book that's really good. I'd encourage you to check those out. Well, in the forests of northern Europe and Asia, there lives a little animal called the ermine. This member of the weasel family is best known for his snow-white fur. Cute little guy, isn't he? He protects his glossy coat at all costs and takes peculiar pride in maintaining it. He doesn't want anything to soil his glossy snow-white coat. Hunters, fur hunters, take cruel advantage of this pride that the ermine has. They have figured out that they don't have to set a snare or trap to catch an ermine. Instead, they find the ermine's home, usually a cleft in the rock or a hollowed-out tree, and they cover the entrance with filth. Hunters then unleash their dogs for a chase, and frightened by the dogs, the ermine will run to its nest for protection. However, when it finds the entrance covered with uncleanness, this little creature will refuse the safety of his home face his canine hunters, and die in order to preserve his purity. You see, to the ermine, his purity is more important than his own life. May the same be true of us as well. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, he expects you to pursue holiness at all costs because he died so we could be clean. Personal holiness is not an option. It's the Lord's expectation. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. 
Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.